With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, guys, uh, before we start the show, I just wanted to make you guys uh, aware and let you guys know that uh, Edward Ashoff... Uh, Friend of the pod, friend of Banner Society, uh, a damn good Gator and a really good college football reporter and a really, really, really good person who recently passed away on Christmas Eve. Donations to his memorial fund. Um, the University of Florida set up a memorial fund for him and the journalism and communications department. And if you're, you know, if you're willing to donate or want to donate something in his memory, uh, those checks can be made out to UF Foundation and they can be sent to P.O. Box one four four two five Gainesville, Florida three two six zero four, with an attention for gift processing and in the memo area of the check, uh, just write Edward Ashoff Memorial Fund. Thanks and enjoy the show. Podcast ain't played nobody. Uh, I'm just going to paint you a picture real fast. My name is Stephen Godfrey at 38 Godfrey on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, podcast Didn't Play Nobody is part of the Banner Society. You can find it on the same social devices and what such. Um, you know my co-host, of course. Uh, but Elliot and Richard Johnson, I before I let them speak, I want to paint you a picture very quickly. Um, we are done with AFCA, gentlemen. We are currently sitting in a hotel room designed for bachelorette parties, exclusively designed for bachelor and bachelorette parties in Nashville, Tennessee. Definitely bachelorette parties. Definitely. I, I understand we don't want to be too gendered here, but this is... I understand we don't want to be too gendered here, but this is a bachelorette party if it threw up. Okay. Uh, we have not had lunch yet. We're recording this at the end of our Banner Society winter sort of off-season meetings. We are very tired. We have done a lot of talking to football coaches over the week. We are also very hungry. Um, I, I'm setting the scene just to give you guys sort of a level of quality you should expect. We're going we're gonna to play through the adversity. And Bud has to get to the airport, and he wants to eat before he does. Bud, so <laughs> this is going to be a tight 45. <laughs> Bud is antsy about um, not only hunger, but also airport transportation. So we have both hungover energy and dad energy going. Gentlemen, we were at AFCA uh, for a good, what, four days, basically. Of We saw each other a little bit. We were crisscross paths. We're walking around a giant convention uh it, it was a very it's a very strange place in nashville i don't want to describe it too much waste time on that but it's big atriums and sections and these weird hotels it's kind of like an orlando disney vibe way out by the airport in nashville tennessee if you know Opryland in nashville that's what we're talking about strange place um but it's filled with about six seven thousand football coaches um my personal highlight was watching bud elliott and i think richard you and i were sort of like staring at each other in the face when this happened 
But how many times this year did you accuse Toledo of of point shaving? Uh, I think twice. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're sitting there at the at the sports partner, and I have a Toledo guy who I'm tight with, and I finally get asked in person. I was like, "All right, other than those couple games, you guys weren't bad. Like, were your kids throwing them? Like, what 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 was the deal there?" No, 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 no. Don't undersell the moment. Okay, what, Don't undersell what the moment. I say to him? We were sitting. You literally were like, were you guys throwing games or something? Right, yeah, 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 yeah. There was no polite way of doing that. Because I was like, it, once I realized we were talking to a Toledo staffer, which is fine, very nice guy, whatever, we were talking about the Mac and all that stuff. I then realized, like, this is the same school that Bud has accused of point shaving on our show multiple times this season. And then I thought, well, Bud won't bring that up. Bud not only brought it up, he asked it like he was a courtroom reporter in the <laughs> 1930s. Like it was, it was absolutely my favorite moment. Now, in fairness, Godfrey walked up later on the conversation. We'd already been talking to him for probably like five, ten minutes. Yeah. It wasn't like the first question we asked him when he sat down. Yeah. Hey, how you doing? Did you guys throw games for money this year? How in the hell so, were you favored by twenty four and lose by twenty four? <laughs> I, I think this like this year was different because so to set the scene, that scene, me and Bud had gotten a table at whatever you know sports bar that's inside this big old. Uh, convention hall and like we'd have some guys just like come through like hey sit down like you know pick brains for 10-15 minutes so much of your time is wasted like trying to DM and text you hey where are you going to be in 10 minutes where are you like like, hey I'll be be done with this this meeting in like 5 like I'll meet you here I'm like this is a huge damn convention like I can't walk there in 5 minutes I have to sprint Um, so instead Richard and I were like we're just going to set up shop at this table here in the sports bar and we'll just be like hey we're going to be here for like the next Forty-five minutes, swing through. Four hours. Yeah, four hours. Yeah, yeah. Out to four be. hours. <laughs> like swing through, and like I think I actually like that strategy. So yeah. look, for for those that don't know, this is this is the American Football Coaches Association convention. There are seven thousand football coaches at this convention from college and high school, and a, some like pro personnel guys, but it is mostly college and high school overwhelmingly. Um, the, the, the amount of logos that you'll see, I mean, the Oregon O is refashioned in all different type of colors, shapes and sizes for the new Georgia G for these different high school programs. You, you would have no idea. And, and you know, there's not a lot of FBS head head coaches there. Um, there's a head coaching meeting on the last day and they will come in for that. Um, but for the most part, it is kind of coordinator level and below yeah. mostly. Some staffs aren't here. Like I know Colorado State staff wasn't here because the weekend of AFCA was like the first time they all got together and like actually had a full staff meeting. By and large, other than obviously LSU and Clemson, there was some representation from most of most of the schools. As Richard said, you would see occasional FB. I mean, you'd see Pat Fitzgerald sort of going through the halls like a politician or uh, maybe like a David Cutcliffe or something like that. But this is where you go and you're like, hey, I know that guy. He was on that staff when I went to visit that school. And it's like running backs coach. And now he's at this school or that kind of thing. And um, for for me specifically, it was always about just expanding network. Hey, what's going on? Would love to talk to you guys. I mean, this goes back for years when SB Nation was launching before we were Banner Society. Um, Richard, for you, it's an added wrinkle of 
you know, there's a lot of politicking going on, a lot of people trying to get jobs. You see a lot of people walking around with resumes, but also it's a lot of talking shop in, in, in the strategy sense. Yeah, this is the only, this is the closest thing this sport really has to like a true smoky back room. Because like James Franklin may be here, but James Franklin's not walking through the convention floor because James Franklin's gonna get mobbed. What James Franklin's here to do is interview for a wide receivers coach in his suite. Yeah. So he will have coaches roll through and they will do the job interviews here at the convention because everybody's here. Um, but yeah, th- there are a lot of like, I mean, they're, they're seminars. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess you can call them. They're, they're breakout sessions where you can go and hear any, I mean, anything. Like there, there were analytics breakout sessions. There were, um, the, I, I went to one done on like speed and, and how to do speed training. And most of your college coaches are not going to these to be clear. Like they, they, it's almost like a running joke that you go learn something at AFCA. The thing is, the high school coaches who are paid by their school districts to go, they have to get they code numbers so they can put it in for like if you're in the attorneys or, or doctors out there, I'm sure you have like continuing legal or continuing med- medical education. CLE classes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they, this is like continuing coaching education, CCE. So they, they get the number, they plug it in. And then you see, like, maybe a third of the room get up and leave before the thing actually starts. <laughs> yeah, That's what the, like, PD whatever yeah, number is. Yeah. yeah, before yeah. They, before every, like, speaker goes, they say, like, the PD whatever number is such and such we, and such. We were next to Bill in, in the analytics one it, where we were sitting. He started writing down, like, you don't need to write that down. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, R.I.P. Bill C. But, yeah, and so, uh, like – some of this stuff kind of becomes like very cool. I, I went to uh, Florida State's new uh, offensive line coach, Alex Atkins, uh, formerly at Charlotte as offensive coordinator. Um, he kind of did kind of like a brown bag session with a bunch of coaches where they just kind of like got together, got a room and, and got a projector and threw some stuff on the board and sat and kind of talked ball. And I kind of sat in the back and was kind of a fly on the wall for that. Um, and that was really cool. It was it was really cool to hear him talk very in frank terms about some of the things that they did this season at Charlotte. Because and Bud, like you can kind of attest to this. Like the 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 profession is so like insulary and like espionage, except for when it's not. Yeah. And like this is when it's very much not. And it's just very interesting to kind of like watch it happen. This is probably the most honest coaches are with you, like in mass all year, right? Like they're not in the middle of the season prep. They're not like right in the middle of recruiting. We're still in the dead period for another forty-eight hours. Um, they're really open and honest about stuff, and they're just they'll just say stuff, right? I mean, like the it, it's it's interesting to, to hear them. I was talking to some guys. I was like, "What do you think?" He's like, "Well, uh, and like one of the coaches was replacing a guy that he respects a lot. He's like, if that's the best that he could do with those guys, because I've watched the tape from last year." Then I got to go out and get some transfers because I, I know like he's an awesome coach. I've clinicked with him before, yeah. And and there's no way like these dudes can't play. So the reason why we we invest so much in AFCA and you've heard us talk about it in the off season periodically and in the in season about how it's a big moment is some news breaks, some people get interviewed, but it is that candor and honesty um, that really defines the event for us because you build relationships with guys, you talk on and off the record as a reporter, and you hear things. You hear things that are isolated, funny, weird, sad, whatever, in the coaching profession. What's always interesting to me is when you hear the same thing from different parties and different groups and you start to understand what is the real like narrative, storyline, whatever you want to call it, that's emerging in the coaching circles this year. So we got one. It's probably not what anyone would expect. Um, 
Bud or Richard, who, who wants to start on this? Because I'm trying to remember who, who heard it first. Um, where, where are you going? Tom Herman. Mm, that was probably Bud. I didn't hear that. So there are a, there, there's a lot of coaches sitting around talking about the state of things, who's up, who's down. You know, obviously everyone on a, on a much more public, like, in a much more public forum, people are going to talk about, hey, LSU just lost off a lot of people off the national title team, right? What we're always kind of looking for is that what's that thing underneath the surface? And that, it kept coming back to Texas and Tom Herman, and there's some real anxiety around that program that maybe people wouldn't expect. The, like, the vibe I got was, hey, he just, he just had to replace both coordinators, right? And re- guys who were close to him. <clears throat> yeah, like stuff that it was not easy for him to do. Everybody knows what the next step is, right? Like you don't get to ask both your coordinators twice. Yeah, you either win or you get lost. And I don't know that he has the level of support there that maybe just I assume that he once did. It's very funny to me because we were talking about Texas uh, again in the big, broad, national level of, hey, it was never supposed to be 2019, right? It was supposed to be 2020, guys, and now they have LSU. They go to Baton Rouge next year. This is more of a decisive year than I think we realize for Texas. Because if this doesn't work and we don't see immediate application of the new coordinators, if we don't see the effect on the existing roster immediately, everything's going to ratchet up. Because, oh, by the way, as PAPN has mentioned 100 times, Texas A&M has the world's greatest schedule for like 80% of the – the first 80% of their season. Is uh, is Texas LSU – is that an early game next year? Do we know? It's uh, I want to say like week two or three. I mean, yeah. LSU is losing 14 or 15 starters off this team. Like, right. You want to get this team that like they I, I'm sure they'd love to play a week zero game against yeah. LSU. LSU would probably prefer not to play a week zero. And we'll have at least one not I'm not Steven Springer's not a new offensive coordinator, but we'll have one offensive coordinator change and perhaps a defensive coordinator change given the news it is Thursday afternoon 145 in uh 145 God's time zone God's time zone I'm God's live time in God's time zone I'm so uh, proud of it and him. Dave Aranda is being linked as a leader for the Baylor job we'll see if he actually gets it by the time you hear this but LSU may have two new coordinators uh you know Joe Brady's gone to the Panthers Exactly, and I don't want to say like it's a foregone conclusion on Herman at all. I, mean, I, think, I think you can honestly look at this and say this is a major opportunity. They're they're timing up LSU the right time. Like Baylor is going to have a new head coach. We know his rule already left. Oklahoma has a new quarterback. Now, I think I think they're going to light the world on fire with Rattler and those second year receivers. But I mean, there's a legitimate chance to win 10, 11 ball games at Texas this year because of what you bring back. This is a very make or break, by the way, just so people don't scream directly into their podcast device. It is week two, Saturday, September 12th. One thing that these programs have in common, they will play one tune-up game beforehand. Both will be playing new head coaches. Texas opens with South Florida, and then LSU opens with Texas San Antonio. So they will both get basically the same experience before they play one another in Baton Rouge in week two. Um, Yeah, no one's saying he's on the hot seat necessarily, but everything's going to come to a very fine point. I think it's fair to say. And that's what people were talking about. Also, there's a lot of jealousy for lack of a better term at these events, because you see a lot of career grinders. And when someone goes through a period of being the bell of the ball, so Joe Brady right now is the smartest man in football, right? At at this moment, it will be someone else. It, It always is. There was a time in which Tom Herman was the greatest college football coach in the world right when houston beat florida state when he's landing five-star defensive linemen to an aac school that the, you know the come up it's the come around on that is is sharp and i think that's why we probably heard so much about him and people kind of grousing about it there is also the i mean this is also a job fair 
Yes. And there, are, there are guys who are here for fundamentally different reasons. Some guys here, some guys are here to drink, and I am serious. I like. I saw some coaches I know who had the shakes in the morning. Uh, the, Big time. Oh, uh, dude. This is so. This is Couple during. Problems, I know they have. Man, like makes sad because they're not getting help. This is during the. This is a recruiting dead period. Right, bud? Okay. Recruiting dead period before the, the final signing day, legacy signing day push starts. So there's a window where they literally, by NCAA rules, cannot be out recruiting on the road. Um, so the national title game, like the convention starts Saturday. Everybody gets in Saturday. And it goes Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. Um, last year, I think it went Wednesday, but whatever. So on, by Monday... Everybody's biggest stressor by Monday afternoon is where they're going to watch the game at. Yeah. I'm serious. You have a conversation, and every conversation ends up, uh, so where are you going to watch the game at? And it's funny that that is kind of the state of play. But, yeah, so there's that faction. There are the coaches who are very much here to hang out with their boys and, and party. Yeah, you um, can come here with a totally, uh, totally secure job. To- totally because it's not expensive. It's like fifty dollars. No, 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 no. The Gaylord is expensive. Wait, the hotel is yeah. expensive, but like the actual convention itself is yeah. not expensive. You get all to register staffers and stuff who like are not like they're not actual coaches. They're just staffers and like I really want to get a ticket. They're to, analysts. Like or, I want to get into the Adidas party or like I can't believe Under Armour didn't have a party or like man, right. A lot of GAs. The one I went to last year. Uh, it's not in existence anymore because the bar tab got ran up sky high. <laughs> Our bad. Um, so there's a little bit of that. <laughs> but were you at that? You were at that party too, right? But briefly, yeah, 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 we all there, contributed to that part too. But there is also guys who are very much here to get a job in a in a much more desperate sense, in a sense of they do not have the network, they do not have. Oh, someone's boys. knocking on the door in the it's middle of the podcast. Probably at, housekeeping at the bachelorette party hotel. It's probably housekeeping. This is live. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that's Kim keeping that in the show. Oh, absolutely. She was laughing. Look, I'm going to be real. Okay, she just walked in with with three dudes standing around a very little table holding microphones. That ain't even the fifth weirdest thing that that hotel <laughs> employee hotel. has seen in a week. Not um, even a chance. I think it was a guy. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't hear the voice. Uh, Either way. So there is a little bit of legitimate like job need in a more desperate sense. In If I don't have the network, if I can't go with my guys – to you know whatever head coach or whatever yeah. coordinator or whatever i there is a big uh kind of there's three or four or five like cork boards in the middle of the convention floor Man. and it's just resumes and i mean resumes top to bottom left to right so resumes. sad i mean you go in the bathroom and went in the bathroom and there was a, a a coach who had kind of left his uh business card f- fanned out in threes next to every sink like not every coach is here, like living on the hog. Not every coach uh, is making one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. No, I to know coach receivers. I, I mean, I've talked to guys before where it's like, yeah, we would come here every year as like young, like a lot of guys were newlyweds, they were broke, they were on GA salaries, making ten grand. You know, all those stories, and they'd go eight up to like a Motel Six just so they could be here to shake hands. And I mean, you know. The odds of suddenly landing a magical job because you shook the right hand on the convention floor are shit, but networking is real. Networking works. And so the levels of hunger, like you're pointing out, are uh, are vast at this deal because you have people who are just here to be like, 
hey, my best friend was an O-line coach and I was a D-line coach at this school. He he got a job on the West Coast. I haven't seen him in two years, so we're going to hook up, have a good time. There's there's plenty of that. And I go and hang out with those guys, listen to them gossip. And then there's also like the saddest resume hunting in the world in, in, in an industry that does not care about you. The other flip side of that is um, like I was talking to a buddy of mine who coaches at a very high-level Power 5 school. And he didn't have his uh, logo polo on. And I was like, yo, are you good? Like, did you get fired or something? Right. And he was like, nah, man, I can't walk through this thing without getting pulled left, right, and center um, by every coach. I mean, like, I I used the James Franklin example because I saw James at one point, and there were, like, three or four, like, autograph seekers that had those white, like, mini Penn State helmets that were, like, waiting to get James, get his autograph. I had a suitcase up. Oh, I didn't see yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so he's, he's hitting that eBay action. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, a couple of news items I just wanted to roll through that happened while we were on the convention floor doing this. Um, I'm going to start with Wazoo because it was funny. Like I, you know, Nick Rolovic has been on PAPN before. We talked to him when he, obviously when he was the Hawaii head coach uh, leading into this season. He's now the head coach at Washington State. A um, couple of things real fast. Uh, well executed search. I thought interesting uh, pool of candidates. Not a ton of diversity in terms of race or ideas, but for Wazoo, I think uh, from what I've heard, they made it clear they were going to spend some money early on. I think that changed the tenor of the search, and people did not treat Wazoo quite like I think people thought they would in terms of this also ran lower tier Pac-12 job. Uh, So congrats to Rolo. He was going to be uh, here at the convention, and if you wanted to go like hang out or have an adult beverage with a a sitting FBS head coach. He's probably what top three that you would pick. He's up there. I, I, I DM'd him. I said, Hey, are you coming to convention this year? It's in Nashville. And his way of saying, yes, I'm coming to convention before the Wazoo stuff happened was to send me a gif of the ultimate warrior running, As one does. running to the ring. As one does. Um, so Wazoo executes a very nice search. Um, pretty tight, pretty concise. Be a lot of people talking about Baylor. A lot of people talking about Billy Napier and sort of the inertia there. Um, what did you guys hear? What was the weirdest thing that you heard in relative to like news breaking in real time? Was there anything extremely strange? Uh, not, I, I won't say news breaking real time, but yeah. we'll get to the PAC 12 in a broader sense. Yeah. Yeah. I a little gonna, bit on, but I do. I don't want to make out. bud feel that good throughout the whole show. Right. We'll, we'll get to the PAC 12 in a broad sense in a second. But when you, there's a lot of the times you'll bounce stuff off guys in a sense of, oh, what do you think about X, Y, or Z? And they will too. And when you brought up, what do you think about Clay Helton still being the USC coach? Oh, shit. Everybody, I will tell you this, everybody west of Texas is thrilled that Clay Helton is still USC's head coach, which should tell you something about USC. And should tell USC something. Some recruiting-minded assistant and head coaches east of the Mississippi who are still happy about it because now, as Bud said on the show before, it's open season in Los Angeles. I don't know if there was ever a wall, but if if there was a fence and it was chain length, it's been run over. I mean, you can go into L.A. now with a lot of confidence and recruit out. We also had multiple people speculate to us. They think USC is broke, especially broke compared to what you think USC has money-wise. And we can't tell because USC is private and we don't have their books. But that was their reasoning. It was like there is no way in hell that they believe Clay Helton can get the job done. The only reason this makes any kind of sense is because they didn't have the money to both fire Helton and give a guy like James Franklin what he would have wanted in terms of facilities, commitment, analyst, staff size, all, all those, and, and and money, you know, for a buyout type thing there. So our, I was surprised at how many people were like, yeah, I, I think USC's broke. There and was, they had that huge 
scandal that they had to pay right. out an enormous, not from the athletics, but like a huge settlement for. I mean, at some point that stuff adds up. So it's not implausible. It's just surprising. And as we were at the convention, three staffers in the athletic department tied to, um, I don't even know what the gate, what, what is the scandal name that we're calling the Lori Laughlin Felicity oh, Huffman the, thing? What's uh, it called? It's, it's varsity called Blues. Like varsity Blues. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So the Varsity oh, Blues wow. scandal, which is different than some of the other scandals at USC, uh, has cost three jobs I- I- at the university, and that's just in the last week. So, uh, yeah, no, I think what we're hearing and in, in Bud's kind of larger theories about it is it's just – we don't even know if the dust is necessarily settled yet. So maybe there's a, maybe there's a little bit of method to madness on keeping him, even if it's not financial. You know, Bud, you're talking about them being broke. I do think they're fundamentally broke in. Uh, that's that came up so much was so many people talked about USC in the context of uh, of. I'm just going to say this because this is the one example that Richard and I got the most was James Franklin going there and. Oh, they! Everybody's terrified about that. Yeah, actually, that was that was a quote. They were like, "We would be scared if if Franklin went there because he would go and be the forward-facing CEO style media darling, playing Los Angeles, playing playing all the way through California, treating it like like it is. It's it's the world's cultural capital in terms of entertainment. He would utilize that, seize upon it. Him being a minority, there's a million things that he could do different and signature and unique at USC. Um, I think I heard a couple other names, but Franklin was like the one, Richard, that everyone kept kept using as the test case. So USC's broken. Everybody's actually really happy about that. All right, <laughs> The West Coast is really happy. Uh, people have questions about Tom Herman. I think by and large, people are pretty happy for Rolo. I mean, that was one where like, yeah, there, there are some coaching hires I won't get into necessarily where like, you know, Coach X gets the job and a lot of people are like, man, fuck that guy. Um, so it is nice to point out when like even way, way off the record, a lot of coaches are like, hey, yeah, good guy. Way to go. Um, a lot of a lot of people had very different theories about what to do with Baylor. Yeah, I I don't know if. So I will say the one thing that when when you hear you listener, dear listener, here's Baylor, the antenna perks up because of what happened at Baylor. Right. I, I understand that. That's not what coaches think, and it's not necessarily because they either do or don't care about those issues. What I mean when I say that is in coaching years, five years or four years since Art Browse got fired and is gone, like that, that's dog years to them. So they are they are talking about and considering the program in a different light just from a, a time perspective. Yeah. And that's one of the most interesting things that I think you get when you talk to people who are coaches who are on the inside of the profession. How they consider how time passes and how that changes a job for better or for worse. And the coaches know what they pay rule. They yeah, know, they know how committed they are to winning. That they can get kids into school academically in the state of Texas. Like everything is there to win, not like national championship win, but but to win. I mean, Rule had pretty quick success there, and I think quicker success than, than I thought he would have certainly. And like that scene is a very good job, especially because they're willing to pay top dollar. So that right there, I think, does not get enough attention when like we all individually go do talk radio, or you're just talking with friends who like college football, or you're just. You're talking, I mean, even inside of our PAPN community with our fans, a lot of people are going to say Mississippi State has a job opening. Well, damn, that's a really tough job. So they're only going to be able to get X level of candidates. You're going to get $20 million guaranteed. That's the money is dictating the the the, the pool, yeah. not the toughness of the job. And don't let some coach say, man, I lack a challenge. I'm not talking about that. It, the bottom line <laughs> is what a coach is doing is going, 
man, I like 12 million guaranteed, now go be a damn DC after this. That's what they're thinking about. They're thinking about the concept of how much can I get locked in guaranteed on a, on a contract that, as Bud says all the time, like not a lot of those coaches on those lower tier SEC West schools get that second deal. I am glad you brought up Mississippi State. Did anybody have a conversation with anyone who thought it was going to work with Leach at Mississippi State? Um, honestly, no. no. Yeah, I did. But, yeah. but it was only from the standpoint of, like, do you think that they expect the results Mullen had there? Because if, they, if they're realistic, it could work. I, I don't think they're realistic. I, I think it, it, any program in the P5 that has a certain level of success, you know, when, once that needle's moved to a particular new height, it's, it's pretty hard to adjust back down. We don't see that a whole lot. The, the, the talking points I got was they're good for one really explosive year where Leach can get the right streak with the right personnel. And he's done this in the Big 12 and he's done this in the Pac-12 where he not only runs a streak of, let's say, like upsetting an LSU, he'll then turn around and beat an Auburn as well in the same season, have a 9 or 10 win year, go to like a Cotton or something like that. Um, Is that sustainable? No one I talked to believed that. And then what most people I spoke to mentioned was it's going to be a a one-and-a-half-year adjustment roster-wise, but then a two-year adjustment on the back end. In other words, like the next person, they're not going to have a Mike Leach disciple take over after Mike Leach and Mississippi State inevitably fall out of love like he has everywhere else. That was what I heard the most of. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Separate from that, did anybody hear anybody pick Clemson to win that game? Because I didn't either. The people, I, oh, and I know Dabo Sweeney may get what you know, may get what he wants there. The thing that I heard was the people who said Clemson could win. It was like in a vein of like heart of a champion type stuff. Yeah, like and they, they believe in Trevor, right? I believe in Trevor. But when people said LSU could win the game or LSU will win the game, it was because of stats, Joe, the receivers, the defense playing better, Dave being Dave, all, you know, on and on and on, the things about LSU, it was it was more like it was definitely more um god, what's the word I'm looking for? intangible for Clemson than it was for LSU when you just talk talk about who was going to win the game. That's the interesting night. because we've seen Clemson in that in that setting, in the national title setting, way more than we've, I mean, more right. than we've seen this LSU combination. Uh, now, the thing I got was a lot of people wanting to see. Also, Venables, I should say. Yeah. Everybody, every, like. Believe in Venables. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the belief yeah. of, I mean, he is, this guy, Venables is a god at this thing, and he's not even here. There's a weird amount of equity that certain guys command. It might even be, dis- I mean, I mean, Venables is well thought of, period, but I mean, you know, yeah, in coaching circles, some of these guys are just, you know. On a pedestal. Uh, no, I had a lot of people wanting to see how Ohio State would apply itself personnel-wise against LSU. Just yeah. in a hypothetical. Not that they deserve to be. None of that okay, tweet right. shit. Yeah, yeah. None <laughs> of that that we saw on Monday night. But a lot of coaches being like, 
they found it more interesting in the hypothetical sense to match LSU and Ohio State's personnel against each other. But again, not in a like uh, fuck Clemson kind of way. It was just like, hey, that might be cool to see X or Y. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, a lot of people have echoed what we've said on the show this year. It's a it, it's maybe not a more talented Ohio State program right now, but because I'm sure Bud can tell me that they're, they've actually been mathematically more talented before, but they look and execute in a better way than they ever have, especially in the back end of that Meyer run. I heard a lot of that. Yeah, and look, but it's pretty clear, like, Urban's best years, when he get, or, or his first four, when he gets to a program. I mean, yeah. He was true at Florida, true at Ohio State. He wasn't really – how long was he at Utah? Four only, probably? I don't even know if he got to four at Utah. Maybe he did. No, it was three. We'll look it up in no, a second. Okay. The Utah example is not really relevant there. Uh, but it does seem like, like Day has the – a real chance to maybe take them to another level. So th- this is something that I think is interesting because in soccer, when you think about soccer jobs, like the way the way people talk about soccer jobs at the highest level of the Premier League with coaches and players, they talk about it as like a project. And you come into a project and you come into obviously win trophies, whether that's Champions League at the top level, a league title in, in, in one of the big five leagues in Europe, or like a domestic cup, uh, FA Cup, or you know, Checker Trade Trophy, or whatever. Um, they talk about it in a sense of like a project, and there's this understanding that you're not going to be there forever. And you know, you get the job done, and then everybody moves on. And like Urban Meyer, I think has that a little bit of that with his jobs. It's it's hey, I'm going to get you a championship. It's going to happen. Are you willing to put up with that and, you know, put up with all of this? I'm gesturing to thin air. Some guys are much better change agents than they are sustainers. Right, right. And, it's a and, different skill set. And Urban is arguably like the best change agent the game's ever seen. Because of how he motivates players, yeah. because of his own expertise with the, offensive the scheme. The immediate uptick you see in recruiting, like the excitement he's able to create. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like, really, really good job. He's not really showing the ability to sustain anywhere. Yeah, not sure if we have a ton of hockey crossover, but a lot of people who do follow the NHL are probably screaming that right now. Change agent is a is a much more prominent role in hockey. It's why you see a lot of firings midseason of head coaches for immediate like culture, chemistry, and pairing reasons. Obviously, it's a slower process in football. Um, uh, as we record, I am double checking to see if we have any breaking news on Baylor. No, I would like to say this though: um, the way that this one's shaken out is very funny. Um, we've all seen as we record the photo of Justin Fuente and the staff and that sort of like awkward hostage scene. Like it was, is obviously their Monday or what's today? Not Monday, Thursday. Um, this is what, uh, this is what I've been reduced to. Dear King. Uh, yeah. Well, Dear we're, yeah, King. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to get there in a second. Yeah. We'll get there in a second. Um, because it was weird for that to happen on the floor too. Um, we'll get to Dear King in a second. Um, to have Justin Fuente go from leading candidate, which a lot of people reported, and Justin Fuente emerging as top name. Again, love the verbiage there on how these tweets come out, right? It's all te- it's all layered. I think I know I feel. Right. It's amazing to see how these things are placed out in the public for particular reasons at particular times. And then to see Fuente, boom, like that, as I snap my fingers in the microphone, sending out that staff photo. Like a hostage photo. Hi, I'm in Blacksburg. <laughs> There's like three people smiling, and one of them is Fuente. Hi, I'm in Blacksburg. I'm in Hokies colors. We're having a staff meeting right now. 2020 Hokies. Um, well, here's what I can tell you about that. What that means is Fuente, it doesn't mean that Fuente did an interview. I don't even think he would say that, I would hope. Fuente definitely interviewed. It was that at some point in this process, Fuente went from thinking, 
If I leave Blacksburg, I go out and the press gets that I've interviewed, I better have a better than 50% chance of getting this damn job. I, I think and feel that Justin Fuente thought he had way better than 50% chance of getting this job. And when guarantees weren't locked in in time, he had to essentially had a panic moment and decided, uh, I got to pull out. Because he didn't want to be caught holding the bag on both sides of the aisle, meaning losing out on Baylor and then also coming home to VTech and saying, hey, you were ready to jump to Baylor. So what he can do technically is say, I'm no, I didn't consider it or I'm pulling out of consideration, all that kind of crap. I'm, also, I'm not saying this is what happened here. Yeah. But you'll, there will also be when some of these things happens, like ADs will say, okay, you've come to me with your offer. Um, all right, take it, motherfucker. Yeah, and now yeah. you're yeah, now you're rocking a hard place, and that sometimes will happen. I'm not saying this will happen here at Virginia Tech, but that also can happen. I know this. I know Whit Babcock pretty well. He had a list ready to go. I guarantee you, he was he he was more than ready. So the highest compliment I can pay an athletic director in these situations is always being ready for almost any scenario with your head coach. Because this is very late in the cycle to be dealing with this as Virginia Tech. This is something a G5 goes. This is something Louisiana Lafayette was prepared to go through. So, all right, Derek King, and then we'll close by flattering Bud. Uh, Derek King, Bud, well, you called this one too, Bud. Uh, on the show, I kept saying, I, I, I spoke with Dana Holgerson multiple times. Derek King uh, essentially redshirts himself, right? They were doing this whole... Uh, roster manipulation mode after four games where basically a handful of the most talented players on Houston's roster redshirted out this season. So they sort of like tanked in college in, yeah, in a college football way. The funny thing is the person who actually told me about this was a track coach. And he was like, look, this is something that we will sort of do sometimes in the track coaching profession, I should say, yeah. is where we'll kind of – tanking's like kind of the word, but it's like we'll load up for next year. Yeah. If, if we know we've got a couple seniors who we can – say or upperclassmen who we can save eligibility or kind of skim some eligibility off of, we will take them, we'll redshirt them, and we'll load our lineups for the next year. And that was sort of – uh, a thought about what Houston was doing. Is Houston redshirting these guys uh, to be really good next year? So Kendall Bryles was the offensive coordinator of Florida State this past year under Willie Taggart. Kendall Bryles also coached Derek King at Houston. He put up fantastic numbers and really kind of the sole highlight of the major Apple White era in a lot of ways. But you called this shot out of the air back in October saying that he would transfer, he would get in the portal. Dana, everyone else, King's family said, no, we're good. We're committed to Houston. Me? I said. <laughs> Monday night during the national title, Derek King enters the portal. I can tell you this. As a reporter, I talked to people at Houston. He did notify Dana. He did notify the assistants about an hour beforehand. He was at workouts and meetings that morning. You know what else happened that morning? Yes, bud. The semester started. So now Houston cannot cut his aid until summer semester starts. Right. That's the rule. If you jump in the portal, they can cut your aid once the current semester finishes out. That's mm-hmm. why these kids wait to jump very smartly here uh, until the semester starts. But what about the ones that do jump in December? And they just... I think some of these kids give bad advice. Hmm. Do you just think they you, panic? I, hold on, because you were having... I think some of them are, are unaware that like if you jump once the semester starts, you can get to finish out the current semester. I was going to say, I'm glad you brought that up. Graduated yet, right? Like right. He graduates in the spring. No, he is a grad transfer. Correct. He will be a grad transfer. Right. He's yeah. saying he hasn't graduated yet. He's not a grad transfer now. No, Houston yeah. told me he has a degree. 
Well, then why the hell isn't he in somebody's spring practice already? I don't and, know. And, and like that's silly. See, I see. I think the family. I was assured that Maybe he already he has his degree. degree. Yeah. I mean, but we'll double check for when we come back next week. But that that was the first. So you and because I found out with you, we were watching the game in a bar, and then I I spoke with some people at Houston after the fact, and I said I asked them about the you know hey does he get the aid for the semester? And I said yeah, but he already has the degree. Uh, What I can tell you is this: I I wanted to to go back to Bud because Bud when he talks portal, like I was fly on the wall for some of Bud's (laughs) conversation. So I'll I'll give Bud this: like me and Godfrey are kind of. Me and Godfrey are here, and we kind of talk more of the coaches. But Bud, it's really interesting to be with Bud at this thing because Bud is talking to coaches, of course, but also like personnel guys, guys who are not on the field coaches, but guys who have roster control or what have you. Um, and it's funny to hear Bud talk about to talk to them because Bud like knows these players, he's mm-hmm. seen these players, scouted these players, and he's talking to them on a level about you know who can they get, who do they want, that kind of stuff. And so when you started talking to these guys about the portal and what the portal's done to the psychology of the game for lack of a better term i just thought it was really cool to kind of sit and be a fly on the wall to some of those discussions that you were having while we were here yeah it really was and i I had a lot of different story ideas you know sort of around the portal and around the process and and, you know what's changed and and i think two years ago the last time we really had substantive talks about this a lot of them were reactive and now some schools are more proactive right like we talked to an sec school at lunch and they're like yeah we actually have two guys who are dedicated to, to the portal. Yeah, just sitting there refreshing. I was like, you have two dudes who all they do is hit F5 on the portal? They like, and he was like, yeah, they like watch film on guys and look. Yeah, and, and they also, they, they manage our walk-on program too. So it's not the only right. thing they do. And my in my head, I was like, okay. So basically you had two guys who were full-timers who probably weren't doing that much before. Now they, that's what they do. But, um, you know, there, there's all different ways schools handle it. With, with King, I was like, there's no way that he's if he's actually a grad transfer, and with all due respect to Dana, that he's going to come back to Houston. Right. Like, dude, you're going to be one of the hotter commodities on the market. Dana didn't recruit you, right? Like, like it wasn't like you were with him for four years. You were with him for, like, half of a year. Exactly. I, I, I don't know. Like, I just never bought the idea that he was going to return to Houston. I thought he was trying to finish out his degree on their dime yeah. on the DL. And, I he think, played, and he played it beautifully, by the way. I think Is there's, the other kid transferring? The other I, kid who also did that, I'm going to sit out and we're going to be better. I don't year. know yet. There were multiple kids. I don't know yet. It, it, the only one that we've talked about is King. As far as I, I was, again, assured by Houston that it, this was not a trend. They do feel good about their roster. They feel like they've recruited well. Obviously, they're going to play the portal, too. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't really worry too much about Houston at all. Um, this is a massive is or, setback for them. I mean, so here's what I was going to throw out. Yeah, I mean, if I had to, if I had to name a school right now, two schools, it would be Oregon or Oklahoma. With Oklahoma, it was interesting because last year the word in the recruiting community was that Oklahoma had told Spencer Rattler, their quarterback who they signed, that they were not going to take a transfer. And then that kind of got amended to, we're not going to take a, like a, a four-year transfer. Like While you we'll, sit in redshirt. We'll, we'll take a grad transfer. Right. Hurts, obviously, right. How does that play with Rattler if they were to go and get a second straight grad transfer? Probably do, they add him to, do they ask him to redshirt? Or? I don't think he played, did he? It, it, like I think he could be primed to have a big time year because the Oklahoma second year receivers are going to be nasty. We sure did hear a lot about Oregon around that convention floor, didn't we? Hey, boy. So these Pac-12 schools are like um, Oregon, baby. One of these things, yeah. Like the <laughs> <laughs> recruiting tactics? Aggression. I, I think. I think. I think Oregon's aggression. I, you know, certainly they don't look on the field like Oregon used to under Chip Kelly, but 
the ruthlessness by which they are conducting business that you would expect from an Alabama, an LSU, or a, uh, one of the Floridas. Oregon is back in that mentality, which should not really shock a lot of people because Mario, I think, I think he's, he either believed it or he talked himself into it that they could apply the SEC principles to Oregon in a really sort of wholesale way. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing. Now, there's an element, though, that we have to consider, which is, according to our Pac-12 people, they said, look, the difference is when you do some certain things in the SEC, we take that to the league office in the SEC. And, right. And, and the league helps to mediate. In this conference, in the Pac-12, if you do that, it might go straight to the NCAA. There's, it's, it's because that's there is – Right. Yeah. And in the SEC, there is this mutually assured – Destruction because everybody's mm-hmm. doing something. Because yes. everybody's doing something. But in the Pac-12, if there's only two, three, four doing something, everybody. exactly, yeah. and you may stand out more of like a sore thumb. But the other thing that's going to be, by the way, that's going to be tough for Clemson in the coming years if they have to if they have to change their their tactics and, and and things prove to be more aggressive. There's a weird benefit for as much as these SEC programs hate one another. To the it's fact that comfort. they're sort of handcuffed to one another in a lot of ways, too. But the other thing yeah. with the, the Pac-12 that was the funniest thing about the whole time is like, hey, all the things that you hear us say about the Pac-12, all <laughs> the things I... that you, dear reader, think about the Pac-12, right, if me... you're not on the West Coast, these guys also think it and say it. All right, let me set this up. So Richard and I were with a personnel director uh, that uh, will not be named at a Pac-12 institution. And let me back up and say this. Bud has a matter-of-factness to him, and it is a pure bullshit. I call it economy of words. Yes. Bud's going to cut through the bullshit, and he's not. he is not going to give you local anesthetic before he cuts you, okay? And all season long, Bud has been very matter-of-fact in you know, talking about the economic disparity in Southern California and how that's affecting football prospects and their family, right? That, that's, an ad, that, that's more of a, um, a, a thought-out kind of narrative. You've also just flat-out said, hey, look, the bodies aren't there. The talent's not there. The passion's not there, and the aggression in recruiting and development's not there. The body, the big bodies. That is, I I asked a couple guys. I was like, "Look, what keeps you up at night?" And it's the big bodies. There right. are not enough big bodies on the West Coast. So we sat with the personnel director in the Pac-12, and I asked him basically all the same questions that we've asked Bud on the show about this. And not only did he say exactly what Bud Elliott has said on PAPM for the past like year, he said it like Bud said it. And Richard and I kind of looked at each other, and I was like, like I almost mouthed the words, like, "Man, I'm like, does he know Bud?" <laughs> um, and. Yeah, so this guy works on the West Coast, and and everything, and this is not, you know, this is not an invitation to pile on the Pac-12 doesn't give a shit. I think specifically, it is an invitation for us to be really damn honest about where we draw the line in P5, the money, the way these staffs are developed, and yeah, if Oregon becomes an aggressive outlier, they're probably doing it to survive. USC, as we said earlier in the show, seems to not want to unfuck itself for a while. And the bottom line is this. The inventory in the West Coast is officially, I'll certify it now after the player personnel quoted Bud back to us, we're, we've got issues. Also, I don't know they, what they're going to do to fix it. Right. They The network. The network is an issue. Hashtag because Bud was, was right. Oh, that was the other thing. Because it was yeah. brought up. Yes. It, like, they, it was brought up. The network, the exposure. That is something these guys yes. think about. Kids watching the games on their cell phones and not knowing where the hell, like, like having no brand recognition. For some of the top-end brands of the Pac-12, I'm not talking about Oregon State here, guys. Oh, like. Yeah. 
And it, yeah, yeah. They, like it, the dude was telling us, like we we would you know we go a hypothetical. These... It's like we go in, a, in high school in Houston. We got to explain ourselves. You know what I mean? Like we got to like. Can you imagine being a Pac-12 school and walking into a major, like a major American city, and they don't even know like who you are? Right. He literally said, "We have to explain where, without giving us away, yeah, school where is. our state is." Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was a state. Yeah, yeah. This is a very successful. So, program. spoiler, it wasn't Stanford. Right. Yeah. And, and like the the other thing is um, the the under leveraging of when they do get in this situation. It was it was kind of like a hypothetical. It was like, what did Washington's Rose Bowl Fiesta Bowl playoff berth three year stretch do for Washington? Yeah. Now, a little bit of that has to do with Chris Peterson and how Chris Peterson is, mm-hmm. just from a personal perspective. Godfrey, you can tell stories about how Washington does not necessarily play ball the way that you would expect them well, to the media, yeah. in a media relation perspective. But the other thing is, um, you know, I wrote the story on LSU's social media department. And the, the person who was talking to me was like, LSU, LSU leveraged this playoff run with what they were able to do with their social media department in this incredibly novel and cool way. And they were like, man, I wish we had that for when now, obviously they didn't pay off those visits with wins, but it was like, I wish we had that when we were on those stages to elevate our brand. And just to look at the entire conference as a whole for a second, USC, we decided it's a smoking crater, total mess right now. Washington. We don't know what they're going to be under Jimmy Lake. Notoriously anti-media, right? Oregon now, I can also tell you, I can tell you directly as a reporter, Oregon has gone from, uh, I'm going to say an open doors policy, but they were they were very much more accessible than they are now. That's Mario's Alabama influence shining through where they're, they're kind of walling off and becoming a tower. So, go ahead. I had a couple people uh, think that Cristobal is going to coach at Auburn sometime soon. Yeah, like, you know what? Like, where is this coming from? That's Did a, you hear this? No, I, that's a weird. I, I've seen Sorry, that. I didn't you. No, I've seen that during silly season before no, too. Yeah, what connection does he have? It's it's the there is a long held like wish fulfillment narrative amongst Auburn fans that one of these saving disciples turns around comes to Auburn. And Luke, I am your father's. Like, it coaches are like picking up on this fan fiction and repeating it to us. No, I just think that people are trying to plug in a guy like Cristobal who has SEC bona fides and then look at jobs and their propensity to open in the next two to three years. Because I've heard this. It was Lane Kiffin to Auburn. Okay. It was Kirby Smart to Auburn. Like, I've heard this so it's before. It's a Cristobal thing. It's a I doubt Auburn it, man. Thing. I mean, I'm not saying would Cristobal do well at Auburn. I think he'd do great. And if they did make a move from Gus, I bet he would be in a, a, like a top five list. Yeah. But do I think there's smoke on it? No. This is a good example of uh, we didn't do a whole lot of show planning today. Like we, we <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. Our, our pre-show meeting was uh, from the co-working space right. where we're doing meetings well, to the hotel. on that note, we're about to have a post-show meeting because we're hungry. Bud has to go to an airport. And we're all uh, different levels of hungover and tired. When we see you next week, we'll probably sound very different as we We'll be back in our home studios. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for a wonderful AFC. Go Tigers. Go Tiger.